Good morning. Scripture reading today is Ezra 9, 10 through 15. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of, of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanliness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us, that there should be no remnant nor any to, nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped, as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the very word of God. Well, I can't trace my family history back all that far. I've dabbled a bit on Ancestry.com and other sites like that. Had a few family members do the same thing and dig up some interesting facts. But this past Friday, I was driving my truck around and stopped at a stoplight, and I was just watching the cars go by and watching the people. And I thought about all the generations before us that laid the foundation for where we find ourselves today. It's fascinating, a bit mind-blowing to consider all of the stories of history that impact us, whether we know it or not. And that's one thing that goes through my mind as we begin a nine-week study, Lord willing, of this book of Ezra. It's a sermon series that I've entitled, Heading Home. Now, as one of the 66 books in our sacred canon, it's important that we study this book and understand its message. I, I'm guessing that many of us don't know Ezra quite as well as maybe you know Romans or something like that. <laughs> the, the story of Ezra is a story from ancient history that, as a Christian, affects you and me whether you realize it or not. This is a story from our ancestors. Can I say that? It's a story from our history. So this morning, uh, my task is to introduce us to the book of Ezra and I think maybe the best way to do that, to give us some background information that we're going to need over the next eight weeks after today to understand as we work through uh, the book, uh, I, I, what I want to do is give us um, its historical, theological, and Christological context. So the historical context of Ezra, the theological context of Ezra and the Christian 
context of Ezra. Uh, If we're going to read this book with any understanding at all, we need to kind of know where we are in the history, the theology, and the meaning of Ezra for Christians. It is, in fact, of course, an Old Testament book, right? So what does it mean for us living in the New Testament era? So first, let's begin with a consideration of the historical context of Ezra. Now, I know some of you will enjoy some of this information. You like history. How many history fascinating people are out there? There's a a few. How many of you are like, nah, not my favorite class? It's okay. You can say it. Nobody. Great. Awesome. This is going to be fun. Um, All right. Here's where we are. If we're going to understand the book of Ezra, know something about the kind of book it is. We need to understand the kind of book Ezra is if we're going to understand its purpose, the reason why it was written, and why it's in our Bibles. So the book of Ezra, you got your English Bible open. You find it where? Did you find it this morning? It's not a big book. It, it comes after First and Second Chronicles and right before Nehemiah, right? Oh, you got your phone, so you, you knew how to find that. That was easy. But that's where it's at in our English Bibles. And the reason it's there is because it's counted among the historical books, starting with Joshua, ending with Esther, Those books in which Ezra is a part are considered something of the the history of the nation of Israel. But in the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible is not set up the same way as our English Bibles. In the Hebrew Bible, Ezra is found toward the end of the canon in the final threefold division of books called the writings. It comes after Daniel and before the books of Chronicles, which are actually the last two books in the Hebrew canon. Nehemiah does actually come after Ezra. I said that it comes uh, right before 2 Chronicles, but Nehemiah actually comes after Ezra in the Hebrew Bible too. But originally, the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah were considered to be a single work, both probably authored by the same person, more than likely, traditionally understood to be Ezra himself. Uh, But what's an interesting side note, the uh, second chapter of Ezra is basically repeated verbatim in the book of Nehemiah, which suggests that they probably were not um, part of the exact same work. They probably were independent, uh, uh, independent writings. Nevertheless, we're just gonna focus on Ezra in this particular series. But again, Ezra is a book of history. It it reads as a narrative. It it tells a a story, a true story, a, a, a historical story. To understand Ezra then, we need to understand something of its historical record. Ezra begins, if you're back, if you're here in Ezra chapter one, it begins the same way the book of 2 Chronicles ends. So the story picks up from where the chronicles of the kings ended. And how does the story of Israel's kings end? You've got to know this to understand your Bibles. It ends in disaster. The northern kingdom of Israel is taken into captivity by the kingdom of Assyria in the late 8th century B.C., 
And then about 100 years later, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem. Now, let me pause for a minute and just lay this out for us. Here's a, something we all know to be true, but we need to sit on it for a second. We are talking about real historical dates. We're talking about history. The, the biblical accounts that we're going to read square remarkably well with what is known outside of the Bible in history. We're not, we're not making up these historical dates that I've already thrown out to us. The Bible, of course, does state unapologetically the theological explanation for history. We'll come to that in a minute. But picking up at the end of 2 Chronicles, we are told of an event that happened in real history. Like this is the stuff in history books. You don't even have to have, be a Christian to know about these dates. These are real historical dates that we're talking about here. So again, picking up at the end of 2 Chronicles, we are told not only that Judah ex exiled into Babylon, but we're told why. We're told why the Jewish people were sent away into Babylon. Um, it's not because of Babylon's superior military power. It's because the people of Israel ignored God's messengers, the prophets. It's because the people of Israel despised the word of the Lord. So 2 Chronicles 36 verse 16 says, The wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. So the date is 587 BC, Jerusalem falls completely, entirely to Babylon. The God of Israel, think of it, the God of Israel brought against his own people the dreaded enemies who, 2 Chronicles 36, 17, killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand. Verse 19 2 Chronicles 36 says that Israel's temple, the one that Solomon had built centuries earlier, was burned to the ground. Verse 20 tells us that the remaining citizens of Jerusalem were exiled to Babylon. So now we have both Assyria and Babylon who used the same strategy of resettling defeated people into their country in order to assimilate them into their culture. The aim, just from a political standpoint, was to crush any possibility of some future nationalistic revival and revolt among the people that Babylon had defeated. So seems like a pretty good strategy, perhaps. And if you are... A, a Jew living in these days, this is devastating. The, your own God has brought the enemies of God upon you, taken you away out of the land, destroyed your place of worship, your temple, and now has put you in a place where the whole aim and effort is to assimilate you into a pagan culture. No wonder the psalmist, like in Psalm 79, would say, how long, O Lord, right? Like, are you going to be angry with us forever? 
But here's the thing. The disastrous story of Judah's exile to Babylon also ends with hope. Just as centuries before, the people of Israel languishing in Egypt under the oppression of Pharaoh did not go unnoticed by their God, so also now God would take note of the, impression, of the oppression of his people in Babylon. They would not be there forever. So here's how the book of Ezra begins. I'm reading from the first three verses. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Cyrus, the Hebrew name is pronounced Koresh. He is known in history as Cyrus the Great. He's the founder of the Persian Empire. He had inherited the vast Median Empire and began to expand it. And in 539 BC, he took Babylon and made it a province in his own empire. Now, Cyrus and the Persians had a different political strategy. Instead of bringing the defeated peoples into their nation to assimilate them, they had a different plan. In fact, We know about this plan. You just read about it in Ezra 1. But we actually know about this plan from a clay cylinder in the British Museum that was discovered in the ruins of Babylon in 1879. Known as the Cyrus Cylinder, it dates to the time of Cyrus, to this very day that we're talking about, and it contains a declaration in his name. Cyrus's idea... It's explained even in the Cyrus Cylinder, and it accords with what we read here in Ezra 1. His idea was to restore the sacred cities and temples throughout his empire, to return conquered peoples to their lands, and to ask them to intercede on his behalf to their gods, to talk to his god, Marduk, and pray that he would have long life and prosperity. So kind of the good cop idea instead of the bad cop idea, that was his strategy for what he would do with conquered peoples. Now, you can debate whether that's a better public policy than the king of, kings of Babylon and Assyria toward his defeated foes, but we'll move on from here, from the historical record, and see that the Bible wants us to notice the theology behind it all. Now, you've already seen it. It's pretty amazing. But as we've said, the Bible tells the story of history, but it always does so with a theological lens. The Bible tells history from God's perspective. So is the Bible a book of history? Uh, It depends on what you mean. It's not merely a history book like any of the other history books. This is a book telling a story of history, but doing so from God's perspective. This is God's story that we're reading about here. It's the story of God. Now, perhaps you deny 
that theological worldview, but don't dismiss it too easily. Perhaps you're a skeptic. Perhaps you're wondering about this theological lens in which the Bible tells history. Much of what happens in history, this is what's one of the most striking realities of the Bible. Much of what happens and happened in history was predicted, was foretold by the scriptures well in advance. And this is particularly true with the events that begin the book of Ezra. Perhaps Cyrus thought that his strategy for dealing with conquered people in his kingdom was one of his greatest ideas, but the Bible emphatically says, we just read it here in Ezra 1, that it was the Lord who stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation and to put it in writing. The, the Bible says, Cyrus, that, that isn't your idea. I'm the one who put that idea in your mind. So, Yes, Cyrus proclaimed that the Jews could return to their homeland, but according to the Bible, God was the real actor here. Now, you're a skeptic, maybe, and so you're saying, how do you know that? Can you back up the claim that God made a pagan king? We're talking about, in history, the great Cyrus, Cyrus the Great. Can you back up the claim that the God of the Bible is the one who is actually behind him, motivating him, one of the greatest rulers, powerful rulers in history to take this kind of action. And what I want to say to you is you actually have definitive proof of that in the Bible. And here's what I mean. Verse 1 says that the reason God stirred up Cyrus to enact this policy was in order to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah. Perhaps the author of Ezra, I'm going to call him Ezra, um, had Jeremiah 29.10 in mind. In that passage, we read this. When 70 years are complete, God says he would visit his people and fulfill his promise and bring them back to Jerusalem. So God said, 70 years in captivity, and I'm going to bring you back. So there you go. There's a prediction. There's a, a, a prediction that was fulfilled in history. So whatever might have been going through Cyrus's mind, whatever his intent may have been when he made this historic proclamation, we are told what was going through God's mind and what God intended by his actions, namely fulfilling his promise. But you say, Still not convinced. Okay, fair enough. Even more striking, even more striking are the words of the God of Israel recorded by the 8th century BC prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 44, God reminds his people that he is their redeemer. He is the one who formed them from the womb. He is the one who made all things. He is the one who frustrates the plans of his enemies. Isaiah 44, 24, 25. Uh, verse 26, this God is the one who fulfills every word of his prophets. And then, and then, this is Isaiah 44, verse 28. You should see it. You really should see it. Because God mentions somebody by name. The Hebrew word is Koresh. And he says of this Cyrus, he is my shepherd. 
he shall fulfill all my purpose when, Cyrus says of Jerusalem, she shall be built and says of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. That is amazing. You are not amazed. We are talking about words that were written down at least 100 years before Cyrus the Great was ever born. That's amazing. This is not some generic word of prophecy that, well, you could kind of make fit however. This is in your Bible, Isaiah 44, 28, God mentioning by name the great Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, some 100 years before he was even born and saying what Cyrus was going to do. I, that's striking. Now, it's so striking. It's so, <laughs> if this was just a generic prophecy that you, well, okay, you kind of made it fit, whatever. No critic would be, would be convinced. So God gets as specific an Old Testament prophecy as you could possibly imagine, maybe rivaled only by the prophecy of a coming suffering servant. But God mentions by name, one of the greatest rulers in known in history, 100 years before he was born, and says what he's going to do in bringing Israel back into their land and restoring their temple. That's amazing. And now you're a critic saying it's too specific. This is what the critics do. They actually say, so specific is this prophecy that probably Isaiah 44 was written after Cyrus was born. You can't win. Because, of course, that kind of criticism betrays one's a priori assumption, which ought to be critiqued on its own. So if you're a skeptic and you're saying, ah, that's so specific, it couldn't be true, then there's nothing that could possibly persuade you. Now, the Jewish historian Josephus says that what happened is that Cyrus became aware of the prophecy about him and in admiration of this, quote, divine power, and earnest desire and ambition seized upon him to fulfill what was so written. And it's just possible that Josephus is right. And this is how this all came about. But even still, that would be an example of prophecy fulfilled with amazing precision. So this is the story where Ezra begins. It begins with the fulfillment of this amazing prophecy. But that's just the beginning of the story. What we read about in the book of Ezra is its own history-making story as well. And we should understand prophecy-fulfilling story. As the Jews begin to come back to their land from exile in Babylon, there's two main things that the book of Ezra highlights for our consideration. So you want to know what's in the book of Ezra, and you're flipping through the pages. That's great. You should be doing that. This is an introductory sermon. You should be flipping through the pages of Ezra. Here's what you're going to find. Here's our scope and sequence for where we're heading. There's two main things. First, chapters 1 through 6. Here we find the story of the efforts to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 1 tells of the response of Cyrus's proclamation by everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up and rebuild the house. And chapter 2 gives us an account of the nearly 50,000 people who comprised the initial returnees to Palestine. It's in chapter 3 that the work of the temple begins with mixed emotions 
and the rebuilding of the temple does not go through without significant difficulty and trouble from certain adversaries who caused the construction to halt for quite some time before finally in chapter six, the temple is built and dedicated and the people rejoice. Now, we don't actually meet Ezra until chapter seven. And the last four chapters are centered on his return from Babylon to Jerusalem with the intent to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach God's statutes and rules in Israel. So as chapters one through six describe the struggle to rebuild the temple and Israel's way of worship with opposition that comes from without, what we find in the second half of Ezra is the struggle to rebuild Israel's way of life, to rebuild obedience to God's laws amidst amidst opposition coming from within. That's the theological context for Ezra. And, and, and it sets us up for what you and I can learn from its story today. You see, if you're a Christian, you have more in common with this story and with these ancient peoples than you might think. Their story is our story. You're reading an account of your ancestors. You say, I'm not Jewish. Most of us probably are not. But here's the thing. This is still your story if you're a Christian. This is a story of your ancestors. It's a story which reminds us that the journey home, whatever home might mean, the journey home is filled with adversaries who seek to destroy our hope in what God has promised to do for us as his people. The story of Ezra is a story which tells us, just as it did our forefathers in the, in the, in the account, it's a story that tells us that the journey home, the, the, the desire to get back into the land, into worship, into the kinds of people that God wants us to be as his special people, is a journey filled with adversaries seeking to do one thing primarily, destroy our hope in what God has promised to do for us. So, what can you and I expect to learn from Ezra? What is the significance of this Old Testament history for us today? What is the Christian context for Ezra? Here's three things to keep in mind as we begin our study. First, keep in mind the meaning of exile and the meaning of return from exile because it is much more significant than a concern about where some ancient people lived at some point in history. The theological meaning of God sending his people into exile and bringing them back is more than just some interesting account of history about where the Jewish people lived in the 6th century B.C., Again, keep the theological context of exile before you. If God, if God was the one behind the exile, sending his people into Babylon, why? Because of their sins, then what is the theological meaning of God bringing them back? What does it mean for God to bring back a people 
from exile if the reason he sent them there was due to their sins. What's it mean? It would mean that the sins which brought the exile about in the first place had been dealt with. In other words, listen to this. Return from exile is just another way the Bible speaks about forgiveness of sins. Now, that should ring a bell if you're a Christian. The forgiveness of sins is, of course, an obvious Christian category of great importance, right? You came this morning, hopefully in a few moments, to hear one of your elders pronounce to you on behalf of the word of God, your sins are forgiven. That should mean something to you. But we, we tend to think of the forgiveness of sins first as something that's offered individually to persons. But that is not how, the Israel's, how Israel's prophets tend to think of forgiveness of sins. And perhaps we would understand our Bibles better if we understood forgiveness from their perspective. You see, from their perspective, we can see now what would be in the minds of these Jews who were permitted to return to their homeland under Cyrus the Great, who were permitted, indeed encouraged, to rebuild their temple. Here's the second thing we need to keep in mind. Not only the meaning of exile and restoration from exile, but second, the meaning of the temple. The meaning of the temple. What's the significance of the temple in Jerusalem in the story of Israel? Briefly, the the temple was the place where heaven and earth met. This is the place where God was understood to be with his people, to dwell in their midst. So it would not be enough for Israel just to be allowed to go back to their homeland. You know this even from just modern political controversy. For the people of Israel, they also need their temple. They understand that the forgiveness of sins would also include the restoring of Israel's worship in the temple. And that's why the struggle to get the temple rebuilt is of such concern in the book of Ezra. We're going to read the first six chapters, and if you're not keeping the theological meaning of temple in your grid here as you're reading your, you're just going to say, whatever, some fight over a building. What's the significance of that? Now, the people are going to succeed, but Israel's second temple is not on par with the one that Solomon had built. And you say, why should I care about that? Here's why. Because when you open your New Testament, let's, let's get to the New Testament. Let's get to Jesus, right? What's, what does this mean? When you open your New Testaments, you are entering into a world that is framed by second temple Judaism. You are not going to understand Jesus and his message if we can't get something of an understanding of what's in the minds of first century Second Temple Judaism. So we've got to try. Here they are. They've got their temple. They're living in their land. But there's problems. And that leads us to a third thing that we need to keep in mind. And that is the importance of God's law. See, it was not enough for Israel to live in their land and to have their temple. If they're going to be fully restored, if exile really is over, 
then the law of God has to be understood and obeyed. The promised kingdom of God that Israel is looking for, the great, unrepeatable, eschatological, and national blessing promised by her God could not be fully realized as long as pagans were still in power over Israel, her temple is not fully restored, and the law is not being followed perfectly. And that's why Ezra's arrival in Jerusalem in Ezra 7, 8, 9, and 10 uh, is so significant. Here's what we read in Ezra 7, 10. It's one of the most famous verses in the book of Ezra. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Why? Because he's just a great preacher. Well, that's a good thing for a preacher to do. But you know why? Because for Ezra, he's like, this is the kingdom of God. If the people are living in their land, if the people are worshiping in their temple, and if the law of God is understood and obeyed, this is home. This is restoration. This is, can I say, heaven. This is the age to come. But just as the temple was rebuilt only with great difficulty, what we're going to find in Ezra 7 through 10 is that the implementation of God's law into society also did not go off without a hitch. Chapters 9 and 10 reveal the faithlessness of the people, first and foremost, even the faithlessness of the leaders themselves. And then Ezra prays a prayer. It's a a part of which uh, was our scripture reading this morning. And it's much more than a prayer of personal repentance. It's not a prayer that's significant as an expression of some private piety. Ezra's prayer in Ezra 9, like Daniel's in Daniel 9 and Nehemiah's in Nehemiah chapter 9, is to be understood as a prayer for Israel's return from exile. It's a prayer like Psalm 79. It's a prayer for the kingdom of God to come. This is the people of God in the Old Testament saying, this is their prayer, your kingdom come. That's what Ezra chapter 9 is. It is what we pray in the Lord's prayer. This is what Israel's praying in Ezra chapter 9. So while Ezra tells us about Israel returning home from exile, rebuilding the temple, seeking to live by God's law, Ezra also tells us that the people of God are not home yet. This isn't the kingdom kingdom has not yet come. So why does a book like Ezra matter to us as Christians? Because only when we understand the world set up by the events of Ezra will we understand the world into which a prophet from Galilee came saying this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent And believe in the gospel. That's Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And if you want to understand those first words from the mouth of Messiah Jesus, then you need to understand the book of Ezra. You can't understand Jesus and his message. You can't understand the meaning of the kingdom of God. And we've been trying for the last few months to get our hands around this idea of the kingdom of God. You can't understand the new covenant. You can't understand the gospel until you understand what these things meant to a first century Jew. And Ezra helps us to do that. Maybe I should say you can't understand it fully. 
Because you, you, could, you could get it. I'm not saying we're not going to get some new revelation here. But I'm just trying to, if you, if you love the gospel, if you love Jesus, if you love the kingdom of God, if you love the new covenant, if you love forgiveness of sins, any of these things matter to you? All right, good. Then you should say, tell me about Ezra. I want to know. I want to know the first century Jewish mindset so I can see the glories of this kingdom now come. You see, it's after the prophet Jeremiah announces that God will restore his people from exile that we find these famous words of promise from God. You know these words. They're on like coffee mugs and probably hanging up. And some, somebody's got this verse hanging up at your house. I almost guarantee it. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Those are some good words. Bad news. They're, all, they're regularly misapplied. <laughs> because they cannot be understood apart from the context of Israel's story recorded in Ezra. So next time you see that verse hanging up there, you say, oh, you love Ezra. And see what happens. Just try it. You see, what future and hope has God promised to you and me? What is the future and hope that God says he has plans for us? Suffice it to say, it's not that dream home that you finally bought or the successful career or the comfortable retirement. It's actually better than that. It's actually better than that. The book of Ezra can point us in the right direction to the promises and claims of Israel's Messiah, who from Ezra's time in history was yet to come. You and I look back in history to Israel's Messiah, and you and I can see more clearly what the kingdom of God is, what the true return from exile is all about. And we too wait with anticipation for the full consummation of what is to come. We're not home yet. Don't settle for that as the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. You got something better coming. Because if you will receive Israel's Messiah, if you will believe in Jesus of Nazareth, if you will accept the welcome that he extends to sinners, then you will not have to wait to die and go to heaven to taste the glories of the age to come. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us, O oh God, to read our Bibles as Jesus taught us to read them. Jesus once told a couple of confused disciples on their way to Emmaus, he taught them beginning with Moses and all the prophets. All the things concerning himself and their eyes were opened. And their eyes were opened. Now we're looking back. We know the Messiah by name. His name is Jesus. But if we're going to understand the wonders of the gospel he proclaimed, if we're going to understand the meaning of the kingdom of God that he said is at hand, 
then we're going to have to understand our Old Testament and how it points us to all that is promised to us by a gracious God. Draw sinners like me and my brothers and sisters evermore into our story that we might see and savor a God who is undefeatable and we live in his victory, the people of God. We thank you for this promise in Jesus' name, amen.